You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 82 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Connor Johnnan and David Howe. In this episode, we are chatting with Dr. Alex Garcia Putnam, who is the Assistant State Physical Anthropologist for the Department of Archaeology and History Preservation in Washington State. And how did we come across Dr. Garcia Putnam? Well, he is a University of Wyoming graduate, of course. Alex, thank you so much for joining us tonight. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing? We're doing awesome, especially since we're all here together on this podcast, which is not something that we've been <laughs> normally doing. Yeah, Sorry, I'm doing I guess great. I, I've missed it because I'm I can't stop laughing. <laughs> Carlton looks like PewDiePie with his new setup, but I like, can't, <laughs> can't get over it. <laughs> Streamer Carlton. Yeah, all I right. got the I got the I'm LEDs. Out. That's how I spent my Sunday morning. But anyways, so Alex, you, you've just recently graduated. I mean, you still have revisions to do on your, on your dissertation, of course, but you actually now live 20 minutes away from Connor. So how, how's been the readjustment in your life to uh, moving out? Cause you were out in the Southeast, if I, if I recall. Yeah. So I, I have the, the dubious honor of, of being in a marriage with another academic. So we are constantly moving from place to place, depending on, you know, where things go. Kelly is down at LSU, so we were down in Baton Rouge for a while. And then I I recently, you know, I was on the job market uh, while I was ABD, and I uh, landed this job, and I moved out to Olympia, Washington. I moved out two days after I defended. So I drove with a packed car from Louisiana to Wyoming, defended my dissertation, and then drove another two days and started the job. Um, and so Kelly's still living in Louisiana. We'll do that for a little bit here. At least Wyoming's on the way to Olympia, because I mean, I imagine if you were defending at the University of Maine, that would be a little bit more of a bummer having to go yeah. there than driving <laughs> drive to Olympia, Washington. <laughs> yeah, actually, if you Google Maps it, Laramie is on the way. It's like one of the stops, so it it actually couldn't have been better. And I like made time to go there. I was there for a week and a half, and I just like hung out and saw friends and did a little rock climbing and you know drank delicious Colorado beer, and then you know got back in the car and moved on over here. So yeah, I yes. live in this like yeah. tiny little studio apartment kind of waiting for Kelly and I to like house hunt in a few months. Gotcha. Yeah. Excellent. Nice. Well, good stuff, man. It's definitely great to have you on. I know on this podcast, I don't know if you listen, we've, we've kind of mentioned some of our journeys at various points throughout the podcast. So we talked with like Chris Rowe or Alex Crabe. And so it, it's, it's fun to finally have you yeah. on the I've show. Met with that us Yes. 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 There might have uh, been alcohol consumed at places. No. no. Okay. No. Conferences Never. attended in in foreign countries. <laughs> yeah. no. is that story is that story going to come up today? It. I don't. We don't have to bring it up, but oh, it's no, been brought up before. Cer- we certainly can. <laughs> You're a good looking dude. I forgot yeah. about that. <laughs> So I guess, yeah, we'll get this out of the way. We mentioned this before, but uh, what, what I was referring to, me, uh, we all, all of us, minus, Connor, you didn't go to Vancouver, did you? The SAAs a couple of years ago was in Vancouver, Canada. It was a great time. I went to the airport with Alex Garcia, our guest today, and Alex Crabe, who was on previously. And we're at, we're at customs. We're at this. So the U.S. has Border Patrol in Canada. Crabe was the first. He's through. Garcia's in front of me and I, I'm, I'm in the line, but I can hear, I can hear Garcia say, no, my last name is Garcia Putnam. Like they're, they're both part of that. And I just hear like kind of going back and forth. Then he turns to me, gives me this disappointed look and then they walk him to a different room and I'm just kind of left in line. Like what the hell just happened? And I, I get through, I get through security. Crabe's like, where's Garcia? And I was like, they took him. And he's like, what does that mean? I'm like, I don't know. Border Patrol took Alex. And, and so I went back to this room and they were like, oh, Alexander Garcia, huh? That's a name on a <laughs> list. And I was like, well, that's great. That's like not my last name. Do you think I'm the laziest criminal of all time and just added a Putnam to the end of it? <laughs> like, 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 and uh, apparently Alexander Garcia is on some list somewhere and mm-hmm. they 
they didn't use these words exactly, but it was right around the time of bad ombre. Hmm. And uh, I was like, oh, I, times. I was like, I see it. I see it. I'm a, I'm a bad ombre, huh? Yeah. And, and yeah, I was in there for like 45 minutes and I almost missed the flight. And you guys have all done this, but the, the university of Wyoming, uh, roundup is on Saturday night and we flew on Sunday morning. And, um, I was a little sweaty, sweating most of the booze out at that point. And they must have thought that I was hiding something because I was just like shaky and sweaty. <laughs> it was it was a rough time. And yeah, then, of I course, know. I get seated. I get seated next to Todd Suraville on the plane. And he looks at the girl sitting next to us and he goes, watch out. He's a bad dude. <laughs> <laughs> Corn pop, dude. Bad dude. Yeah, you know. was like, <laughs> Great. Perfect. Did the drugs make it to Laramie? <laughs> See, this is the main reason I didn't go to, to Canada. You, can't, you just can't trust Canadians. I mean, they don't even know what an audio. They, they don't even know the kind of no, drinks I like up there. No, I, I gotta say, you know, the word. No, these were all. These were all. This is American customs. These were all Americans doing this. Um, well, yeah. Yeah. No, what the can Canadians. The Canadians like gave me a pat on the back and were like. Thanks for visiting. You've been great. And I was like, <laughs> would you like to stay? Here's a free doctor's visit on us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Oh man. Now that that's wow. out of the way. Yeah. So we usually start out, you know, obviously you're an archeologist, you're a bioarchaeologist. And I think we can talk about that more later. What were kind of your first experiences in anthropology or, or archeology? span It was really college. You know, I've listened to a few of these podcasts and, you hear, you know, you hear Bob Kelly say he's been interested in it forever, right? I found it in college. I was always a history nerd. Like, I remember watching the history, when the History Channel was a real thing, when, like when it was exclusively like modern Marvels, and it wasn't like Ghost Hunters, right? <laughs> How stuff is made, modern Marvels. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. When it when it was just that stuff, that's like all I ever watched. And that was like me as a kid that. was just like spewing facts at people that they didn't care about. And when I went to, I had like a long and rambling road through college. I transferred uh, college once and I just kind of like didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I always was interested in in the past. And then I randomly took an archaeology class and was like, sold, done. This is the only thing. So yeah, it was, it was pretty much like one class and, and hooked. Excellent. And so you also grew up as a professor's kid, like your father teaches at UNC Chapel Hill. He, he was at Duke for ages, and now he's at University of Texas okay. Medical Branch. Right. I said UNC Ch- <laughs> yeah, it's wrong, wrong university. Don't yeah, Duke yeah. and UNC have a very big rivalry? Yeah, no, you it's, I mean, really it's, it up. it's just the biggest rivalry in sports, but yeah, I was about uh, to say. it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I had them intertwined. Um, yeah, yeah. But even still growing up, you because um, your, your father's not an anthropologist. He teaches. He's in the medical school there. He was gotcha. at the medical school at Duke and now in, now in the University of Texas. Okay. Excellent, man. That um, a, and did that have any influence on you, like either just attending college or, you know, what was your original major going in? So, yeah, I mean, I, there was no question that I was going to go to college or not. I always wanted to. And I never, I, I think something different from, from growing up with a, with a parent in academia, I, I never thought of getting a job, like get, having a career where I just like, went and made money and came home and it didn't matter. Right. Like, or that it, you know, that I didn't care about. I like wanted to enjoy what I did. And like, I love my dad was like researching stuff and, and he looks at infectious diseases and it, which is funny. If you look at my dissertation work, we actually focus on the same disease. Uh, we're both now into yellow fever, which is really weird, but yeah, I think a big part of it was growing up and just being like, oh, I don't I don't have to just like get a job. I can I can like actually do something that sounds enjoyable and I can pa- follow an interest. And there, there's a career out there for someone who just wants to follow an interest. So I went to James Madison University. Uh, I got in out of high school and it just wasn't the right fit. It was to put it in perspective, I transferred to Skidmore College, which doesn't have a football team, which doesn't have fraternities and sororities. It's in upstate New York. It's tiny. It's got 2000 students. And it also has one hell of an anthropology department. And I just I I fell in love quickly. I actually I got to give James Madison some credit, though. My first anthropology classes were there and they also have a great anthro program. And had I stayed, I think I could have found a home in that department. I just 
I cut bait and ran. Now, were you at JMU back when it was, was it the Herpes or the Clap University of the country? <laughs> that was just after I left. What's yeah. up? <laughs> yeah, JMU, James Madison University in Virginia. This is how I know. So my alma mater, Radford, used to have that title, of like <laughs> highest chlamydia rate in the country, of like university of the country. And then JMU, they, they shot for the stars. And they and they took it. They took it for Radford, just up the interstate. It just traveled two hours up, up eighty one. I think it it actually did travel. Um, yeah, it was probably a Radford student that brought it there. Let's be honest. Yeah, it probably you was. Yeah. Fourth presidents. Yeah. No, I, I actually I, I I have some fond memories of James Madison. It was just not the right school for me, and I transferred to Skidmore College, which is in Saratoga Springs, New York. And I, I loved it up there. I mean, that's where I first found rock climbing. That's where I also first found the craft beer. Um, so all the other things that I, I love, I happened to find when I lived in New York. And it gave me access to New York City and Boston and, and all these other things. The two things that I most associate you with are craft beer and rock climbing. <laughs> and is, that is, that's, that's the culprit. That's, that's the reason. All you almost right. did both yeah. of them yesterday. So. <laughs> did you work with Dr. Bender? Up? Yeah. Okay. Cause yeah. Cause I'm, I'm working on her with randomly on another project. She's doing stuff in South Park right yeah. now, still working up there. So I was just super random. So Sue was my first advisor when I, when I, she was the kind of the sole archeologist in the department and she retired just after my, I did my field school. So I actually did my field school in South Park. We actually had a CSU master's student as our TA. Yeah. David knows him. Ben, right? Or yeah. That- yeah. Oh, Perlmutter? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, right, like, all these weird connections out to... I never knew I'd be out to Colorado and Wyoming, right? And I, I have all these strange these strange connections from my first field school. That was my first time west of the Mississippi. Whoa. It was yeah. just getting off the plane in Denver and going right into the into the Rockies. You know, like, interesting when you talk about, like, interesting connections or crazy connections. My first CRM project was a Tetra Tech on the Mountain Valley Pipeline project. And it's like, oh, what are you here for? I'm like, oh, I'm just doing this because I'm about to go to University of Wyoming. Like, oh, we just had this other guy who's going to the University of Wyoming. His name is Alex Garcia, but he's overworking in Petra right now. I was like, oh, that's cool. Someone to look forward to. And then I, and then I'm, and then I'm looking for housing in Laramie and I'm talking to this lady, uh, Diana. She's like, oh, why are you here? And I was like, oh, you know, I'm an archaeologist about to start uh, at the University of Wyoming. She's like, interesting. I have another archaeologist as a tenant. His name is Alex Garcia Putnam. So like, I had two references before. I remember the first time meeting you. I'm like, so uh, I've been following you for the past three months. And you and Kelly were like, what? And I was like, let me explain. Well, and, and our crew chief on that project was also. Nico Jacobson. Yeah. And she also ended up going to University of Wyoming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was. Uh, yeah, she was hitting me up about Bob, and I was like, "He's about to retire, so you should get out here." And she did. Um, <laughs> before this segment closes, so you went to Skid- JMU, then Skidmore. Uh, where'd you end up pursuing your master's degree? So I fell in love with bioarchaeology from taking one osteology class. I was like, I worked with bones once, and I was like, rocks, and I was done. And then I wasn't sure if I wanted to do forensics or bioarchaeology. And I, uh, I ended up doing a master's program at East Carolina University. And the person I ended up working with there, Megan Perry, let me choose between forensics and bioarch and let me do a little bit of both while I was there. So that was huge. And it ended up, uh, as you mentioned a minute ago, it ended up letting me go to Petra twice and excavate tombs in Petra. So I can't really ever complain about that. No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, that's like a, uh, in terms of places to work, that is one, you know, on the archaeology bucket list to say you've worked at a like a has such a prominent site like that not once but twice like that's yeah that's amazing and what ultimately kind of pushed you into going for a master's um <laughs> i would love to say it's some like really wonderful story but no it was like 2011 and i was living at home after graduating college because 2011 was pretty terrible on the job market and i was like well i can either uh i can either just like go get a job somewhere doing something or I can go back to school. And I was like, all right, I'm going to try this back to school thing. And I, so I applied for a few PhD programs, a few master's programs and doing a terminal master's was like the best decision I ever made. I was not ready for a PhD. I was not mentally or emotionally like ready for that type of research and that type of commitment. And a two year master's was amazing. I felt so much more sure of myself as a scholar. I did a small experiment for my master's thesis. I mean, it ended up just, I was like, oh, okay. Like science isn't that hard. 
look, I did the scientific method again, <laughs> you know? Excellent. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, uh, we try to stress the importance of that here too. Like for the audience listening, you don't have to go right into a PhD. I think we've hammered that in. And like yeah. Alex is a really good, you know, success story of that. Cause like the emotionally mature thing is something no one considers and no one's going to tell you like, Hey, you're a kid. Like, don't come here. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've yeah. been actively telling our audience not to pursue a PhD for like a whole oh, yeah. year now. Just avoid it. There's no there's no we reason are, if you don't. We are truly inspiring the next generation here <laughs> and actively stopping. <laughs> if you're 110% committed to the, w- that thing, whatever it is, then I say go for it. But if you have any doubt, it's a really hard road. The job mm-hmm. market's terrible. It's hard just to get through it in the first place. So, yeah, I mean, it. It's something not to be taken lightly, for sure. Excellent. And we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. And uh, in the next segment, we'll figure oh. out uh, exactly why Alex decided to take the road in all that trouble and how that's paid off for him. So we'll be right back with episode 82 with Alex Garcia Putnam. Welcome back to episode 82 of Life in Ruins podcast. We have Dr. Alex Garcia Putnam here. And we ended the last segment kind of talking about things. I just based what we were talking about. But we wanted to start this segment off by <laughs> having Alex kind of define what is a bioarchaeologist and maybe highlight some differences between bioarchaeology and forensic anthropology. Yeah. So as I said, I'm I kind of especially during my masters, I had the opportunity to do do both of those things. And so forensic anthropology, right, is that we Connor and I were just talking about this whole bones phenomenon, right? Everyone watched the show Bones and wanted to do forensic anthropology, right? And that is looking at the human skeleton and trying to assess it for for medical legal purposes, right? Solving a crime, you know, trying to give this person an identity to compare to like a missing persons list and then trying to, you know, help help criminal investigators. Bioarchaeology is looking at the archaeological record through human skeletal materials, right? If you think about all the things humans leave behind, we leave behind pottery, we leave behind stone tools, we leave behind metal artifacts, but we also leave behind our bodies, right? We, we bury our dead. We've been burying our dead for hundreds of thousands of years, and so we have this rich kind of archaeological resources, the, the, the human body, the human skeleton. And, you know, the folks that work with ceramics and that work with stone tools, you are kind of using those as a proxy to look at human behavior. And oftentimes, especially with ceramics, you can get at specific behaviors with, with you know, but with the human body, we're looking at the direct evidence of a human life. Right. And. That's not to say that we can always perfectly in, in, infer, you know, patterns of behavior from that human skeleton. We can see that individual, which is which is something that's really missing in a lot of our other archaeological investigations. Is we can get down to the individual level and scale up to the population level, and that's I think one of the one of the amazing things that bioarchaeology does is that that kind of multi-scalar approach. Real, I mean, you know the. Looking at one skeleton is interesting. Looking at a population or a, a sample from a cemetery really tells you about about a past population. You ended up writing your dissertation on that kind of approach, right? You, you basically were given a certain amount of bones and trying to infer stuff off of that. Do you mind talking about that? No, not at all. So I, the shocker, the COVID-19 pandemic kind of derailed my original dissertation topic. I was going to be working down in Peru. I had, I actually still have a site. I'm trying to kind of figure out how to kind of move off of it now, now that I have this job. But um, I had this whole project in Peru. I'm really a historical bioarchaeologist, so I, I'm even more kind of different from the stuff you guys do, right? I, I, I really work in the historic time period. My big interests are kind of uh, colonialism and, and after, right? My dissertation research ended up, I was, I was living in Baton Rouge and the pandemic hit and I was like, well, what do I do? I can't get to Peru anytime soon. And then a friend of a friend, actually one of Alex Crabe's friends. Uh, get back it, here. What was that? I'm, sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah. If I couldn't get back if I was stuck there. Right. Yeah. 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 No, going down there during the going down there still is a is a kind of a not an easy thing. So uh, through a friend of a friend in Baton Rouge, I made some contacts that worked at the attorney general's office. Strangely enough, they because of the amount of uh, burials that kind of uh, erode out due to flooding because of hurricanes and things in, in Louisiana. They house bioarchaeologists that constantly work on those 
constantly work on those collections. And they had a collection that had been kind of unfortunately neglected. And it was a collection from a hospital from New Orleans from the 1840s to the 1920s. Um, And it was an indigent hospital. So it was the hospital for the poorest residents of New Orleans. And it had unfortunately also been found as they were doing road maintenance. So it was backhoed up um, and it bore all the marks of those backhoes. And it was, it was about 881 fragments representing only 74 individuals. Um, so Whoa. incredibly fragmentary stuff. Yeah. And I, I spent a lot of time with glue. I definitely like left that little room just like kind of dizzy uh, multiple days in a row from huffing probably a little too much glue, but <laughs> <laughs> and then and then I ultimately was able to actually get my hands on another collection from the same cemetery that was housed at Louisiana State University. And that's actually since been reinterred, which is really cool. I'm really uh, happy that that's happened. Cool. But yeah, it's this population of immigrants and enslaved individuals and free people of color and and kind of the lowest margins of society in, in New Orleans from this crazy time period, right? This is before the Civil War to just before the Great Depression. Think about what changed in the United States in that time period, right? Like massive cultural changes. And this population saw it all from from the bottom effectively. And and so I looked at the health of those individuals. And then I also, unfortunately, uh, these individuals were also used by the medical school as specimens after they died. Uh, So they were cut up um, and autopsied and dissected I also looked at those marks of kind of post-mortem violence, if you will. Mm-hmm. That's super cool. It, I mean, not for it, them, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, one of the, one of the other things that I, I, I kind of I hinted at earlier when I talked about yellow fever, yellow fever was this massive issue in New Orleans during this time period, and it can't be seen skeletally. You really have no, it, has, yeah. it leaves no marks. It usually kills fast enough that nothing, nothing would show anyways. And so I was looking at this population of, you know, of marginalized individuals in the midst of a pandemic, effectively. Hmm. And this is in, you know, June 2020. So this is the midst of the pandemic right after George Floyd. Right. I, I felt like I had stumbled upon this dissertation that was the most timely kind of difficult thing I could have imagined. Right. Um, in terms of grappling with those issues. So. You mentioned like looking at populations like in a cemetery rather than just Mm -hmm. like one person. I worked for a site for the DOD. I can't say like where it is, but uh, speaking of pandemics too, all these graves didn't have any bones left. There were a few like metal trinkets and things like that in glass, but it was just like, you know, stained soil where there was a body and you couldn't read some of the headstones and it was up in rural like Appalachia. And like you could tell there were very many of them that died at the same time and ended up being the, the flu from 19, what, 11 around then. Um, 17, Spanish flu. Yeah. Spanish flu. And like, then we could tell like, okay, was it 1918? Yeah. Okay. They're like the gravestones were like right around, like in those areas. Cause you could narrow it down then. And they were all of course like Irish railroad workers. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's just neat when you like know history a little bit and then you can put that in with what you're digging up. That's why historic archaeology is really cool. So this is one of the things I'm kind of, I love, it's funny, I, I switched from being a history major to being an anthropology major. I always had this interest in history, but I was always bothered because it wasn't perfect. Neither is archaeology, right? We, we, there's biases in both. But by using the two of them together, you can really eliminate a lot of things. So I, didn't, I had this like relatively healthy looking skeletal sample. I didn't see any like really overt signs of poor health. But they were like the poorest of the poor from you know, a Southern city in the 1860s. It's just not, not a, not necessarily the happiest place to live. And they were, and they died at a hospital, right? You'd think they wouldn't be healthy. And so the history clued me into yellow fever, but then I looked at the history further and there's no mention of these cut marks and these saw marks from dissections and things. And so the history informed my health interpretation and my bioarchaeology informed the the kind of the history of this hospital as well. So now did like the families of these people know what was going on or was it just like, you'd have some poor dude that generally someone in the society looks down upon or they don't have power within the societal structure that doctors just felt like, okay, this person's dead. They're now going to become a unwilling cadaver. 
Yeah. And so the answer, the the laws that govern who owns a, a deceased individual are incredibly complicated and, and they're not very clear, um, especially the historical laws. Um, so we didn't have a body, a legalized body donation program in the U.S. till the 1960s. What? That was much later. I was like 1920s, 1930s. You're like, nah, fam. 1960s. Um, so I believe it's the, I believe it's the, oh, I should, I don't remember the exact law, but it's, yeah, I think it's 1968 was when that law went into, went into official, like into the, into the law books. But there were universities that were kind of doing, you know, it had body donation things before that. But like in terms of, in terms of it being them, not just being able to like, you know, take unclaimed bodies. Don't quote me on this, but I believe in some States unclaimed bodies are actually still fair game. Definitely in Texas, just because Texas, <laughs> just because Texas is like that, you know. That's just, just <laughs> if it were gonna be a state, it would be Texas, Texas or Louisiana. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I the the research into these individuals was, I mean, you know, looking at how they were treated in life and then how they were treated in death. You see, and then and then of course the 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 wealthy cemeteries aren't getting bulldozed for a road to go through them either. Right. So you have this this next level of, of, you know, destruction of these individuals lives and identities. Right. So they were mistreated in life. They had in, in many cases, they were dissected in death and then bulldozed 100 years later. And then, of course, I find them sitting on a shelf and like my, my colleagues, in the attorney general's office are swamped They're You know, they're doing they're doing this work day in and day out. They just didn't have the time to look at a collection like that. And that's why they brought me in. And I thought this was going to be a fun little side project to do during the pandemic because I could do it from home effectively. You know, I went in to the attorney general's office to do it, but but it was safe. I was in the I was in a room alone. So I just sat there. And when someone came in, I put a little mask on. But it turned into this much bigger thing and turned it easily turned into my dissertation without me kind of even really noticing. And then I pitched it to my committee and they were on board and I got writing. You know, this, this really brings up an excellent point, especially like in today's archaeology and anthropology where there's a whole question of what's what's even the point. Like, how do these studies relate to modern day issues? And your dissertation is when uh, we spoke earlier in the spring and you were telling me about your dissertation. I was just absolutely blown away at, at how you were able to use really your your training to identify, you know, not just the cut marks, right, but also the societal, culture, socio-cultural context in which those cut marks were able to exist. And that, I think, really just illustrates the utility of uh, especially bioarchaeology and forensic anthropology, because just by looking at these, looking at the health of these skeletons, but also realizing that there's this um, post-mortem manipulation going on, talks about much larger concepts regarding uh, society during that time that, you know, people just absolutely overlook. And then you're like this, it just informs so much and opens, as you said, uh, such a can of worms that it became your dissertation that hits, you know, a lot of forms, you know, the core of anthropology uh, as a discipline here in the United States. And it's just fascinating what the, some of those those projects like the one that you undertook can can reveal about our culture in some areas. Yeah, and I mean it's it's hard, right? Some of these things that we're uncovering, and then yeah, you know, this is true for many people looking at people looking at things like climate change, people looking at underrepresented communities. It's it's these pieces of of the world that are difficult and are 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 contentious topics, and and I think we have to confront those. We we shouldn't shy away from them. We should be. We should be seeking those opportunities out. And I think this was also happening when, when we last spoke in the midst of, of what was going on in New England, where it was revealed that museums in the Northeast were using African-Americans as their teaching collections, right? And you could see those dualities between what was happening there and clearly what was happening in, in parts of New Orleans. Yeah, I think I think you're referring to the, the move bombing victims. Um, yes, that's at, it. At, at the Pennsylvania schools. Yeah. So not technically New England, but we'll forgive you for that one. The Mid-Atlantic, um, my fault. Mid- <laughs> I don't know, where does Pennsylvania fall? Is it the Mid-Atlantic or is it the... It is because it's underneath New York. I had yeah. a whole argument with someone about this. Yeah, because so, yeah. New York is also technically not New England. It's the Mid-Atlantic, yes. 
New York is New York, I think. And New York is like Texas. It's not it's not it's it's not one thing. <laughs> it's its own thing, yeah. It's its own, yeah. It's all East Coast to me, so that's Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Con- Connor having never have you ever lived on the East Coast? No, I've never <laughs> lived there. I visited there, but yeah. <laughs> not not quite the experience that you guys are having. Yeah. The kind of the postmortem like being like destroyed by uh, by uh, like a, uh, a backhoe or something like that, mm-hmm. a trencher is the reason that I'm actually going to just, you know, be burned. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to be a part of that postmortem stuff, but that, yeah, like I, I really like what you, um, you guys are talking about because sometimes it's hard. Like you both had mentioned that it's hard to bring this into the real world to the present day to make it applicable. So I think it's really cool that yeah, you can. You you were able to do that, and you were able to make it through COVID with a dissertation. You know, in in the strangest of ways, the pandemic and and moving away from this project in Peru, I actually sped up because I didn't have to wait for summer field work. Right, that you know, working internationally is is really challenging. Right, you go down for six weeks in the summer, eight weeks in the summer. Maybe you spend a semester there, but still, like it's it's these shorter stints. This, I was able to do it 15 minutes from home, and I knocked out my data collection in four months while I was writing. So I started this in early summer 2020 and defended in September 2021. And, you know, I I don't that wouldn't have been possible with that Peru project. And that Peru project still has a, a very strong place in my heart. I would love to go back and excavate there. Obviously, with with my new job, I'm I'm incredibly busy here in Washington. And, you know, taking a month off is not really something I can do in a, in a, you know, adult job. Yeah, man, that's, that's absolutely nuts. And with that, we'll be right back with segment three and continuing on episode 82 with uh, Dr. Garcia Putnam. And we're back with episode 82. So we wanted to close out this segment talking with Alex about his experiences working as a bioarchaeologist across the globe, because he's been able to do some really cool things during his career. So we kind of wanted to highlight you know, your experiences in the field doing a lot of different things and, you know, how they've, how they've shaped your research and worldview and and perspectives in archaeology. So um, why don't we go ahead and just kind of start with Petra because we've already mentioned that and then kind of go from there. So what was, what, what was that like getting to work there? So I started this master's program knowing about as much as about Petra as anybody else. I was like, oh, Indiana Jones. Cool. Great. Awesome. Like Temple of the Crescent Moon, you know, and I, you know, the whole time I was, I was there for, I actually did it at the end of my two years there. So I finished, I, I defended my master's and then left for Petra for six weeks. And Jordan is the coolest country. I have nothing but positive things to say about Jordan. It's incredibly friendly. You know, the, the people there are wonderful. The food there is amazing. We lived in a kind of a Bedouin village just on the outskirts of Petra. Uh, and we, you know, took the truck into work every day and, it's amazing. You, you you never become desensitized to where you're working when you're there. You'll like, you'll like, you'll like, you know, be screening or working hard. Then you'll look up and you'll be like, I'm in Petra. Like, like, this is the coolest thing. Right. You know, like the big stone carved facade tombs, like that are straight up the rock walls. Uh, Shocker. That's not where like the, that's not where you and I get buried. Right. Um, um, those are those are tombs. But but the, the kind of the, the everyday person doesn't get buried there. And so they were actually uh, the, the project that I was on was looking at a kind of the what I like what I always like to think of is like the subdivision of Petra. It was like just outside of the like you had to you you crossed the Roman road and you went outside past some temples and there was this ridge called the North Ridge and it had a series of of homes and a series of tombs and they were right next to each other. So we had a team doing the domestic archaeology and a team doing the tomb archaeology and I was in charge of one of the tombs and I was there 2014 and 2016. I will say this was a joint project between East Carolina University and North Carolina State University. My advisor at the time, Dr. Megan Perry at East Carolina and uh, Tom Parker, who recently passed away, who was an incredible uh, scholar. He was at NC State and he was one of the best ceramicists I've ever seen. He, you could pass him the tiniest shirt and he could tell you what year it was from. I mean, it, just absolutely incredible guy. And so, yeah, I was in charge of one of one of these tomb excavations. And the way it worked is they dug straight down into the sandstone bedrock 
and then straight over, making this underground chamber. And then they dug two, they dug graves down into the floor. And that was about 2000 years ago. Uh, it's since been filled with desert sand and trash and debris. So we had that. It was about two meters down. And then the the chambers were about three, were about two and a half by two and a half meters square. Um, so it was a lot of dirt to move before we even got to the, the skeletal remains. How hard was it to remove the Autobot and Decepticon remains from, uh, from um, the site? I was about to ask about the Fremen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, what's really funny is if, if you if you watch, if you've ever been to Jordan or go to Jordan, you'll also go to Wadi Rum, which is right next to Petra, this big desert valley with huge sandstone towers on either side. And Dune was filmed there. Transformers was filmed there. Star Wars... The Last Jedi was filmed there. Aladdin was filmed there. So like you'll you'll see all these things and you're like, oh, I've been there. Oh, I've been there. Oh, look at that. So it is it is pretty incredible in that sense. <laughs> but no, I did not run into any Decepticons. Good. Could have been your toaster. You never would have known. I know. There's <laughs> like Camaro that you was driving. Yeah, yeah, that Camaro. Was, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. If only I had had a Camaro at the time or now. <laughs> <laughs> Did you eat a lot of shawarma there? I ate a ton of shawarma and I ate a ton of falafel. But I will say that both times I was there coincided with Ramadan. Huh. So I was actually really limited in my ability to go to restaurants because lots of them were closed right. during during the religious holiday. How was did you have local archaeologists and archaeological support working during that time as well? Uh, so that is the weirdest part about working internationally is that you hire local workers, right, to, to help you. And so we had not only did we have local Bedouin workers that were honestly better at archaeology than I will ever be. Right. These are guys that have never been formally trained. They can excavate down They're like, I'm like, hey, hey, 10 more centimeters. And they just go at it with a pick. And it's the flattest floor you've ever seen. Right. And it's incredible. And we also had uh, Department of Antiquity um, reps there as well. So were the Bedouins working during Ramadan? Is that Ramadan is when they you don't you fast during the day? Yes. Um, And so that was actually a big, a big uh, kind of point of contention a lot. We some of the more devout members of the the working group would want to um, would want to fast and not even drink water. And we would be like, guys, it's too hot. Like, please, there are exemptions to to fasting uh in ramadan and we would be like guys this is this is like one of those times right this is one of those times where you can please you were working much too hard you need to drink water and so that was really hard for us you know it's this weird dynamic of of working with another group of people and and them being kind of the the workforce there with you it was not something i had ever experienced in the united states obviously I said we had a big Islamic community when I was growing up and two days during Ramadan was uh, we changed practice to evenings after a while. Oh, 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 for, for football. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Yeah, it makes complete sense. Um, so. I will say that our work schedule there was um, get up at like 430. We were on site by six and we were done by like one, one thirty every day. And we had a forced siesta. So we would eat a big lunch. And then from like two to three in the afternoon, it didn't matter if you slept, but you had to be horizontal. Just the idea, like, dude. It was mandated, but it was, but like, and then you get up in the afternoon and do lab work. Oh, it was mandated. Damn. Okay. No, like, no, well. like it, people were like, dude, like go lie down, go lie down. You'd be like, no, I got, I got work to do. doesn't matter. Go lie down. I can just imagine someone with like a cricket bat just like knocking out people's knees like horizontal and just lie like, down, lie down. <laughs> get, get like no. a level out too and just yeah, be like, yeah. nope, you're I not got, horizontal. <laughs> I gotta say, guys, I never throughout college, never throughout grad, I never nap. I, I'm not a napper. I slept every single day from two <laughs> to three on that project. Just I passed out. Excellent. But yeah, so Jordan was incredible, right? I was able to, you know, see this whole other culture. I was able to excavate these incredible in these incredible places, work with just some of the best people in the world. And really, I was completely immersed in that culture. My Arabic is awful. I know four words. Um, so I, I like all credit goes to my my the guys I worked with, the Bedouin that I worked with, because they spoke a lot more English than I spoke Arabic. right? <laughs> and we made it work. 
Um, I also, I was, I was really fortunate my second year there. One of my students was studying to be, I think she was an Arabic minor. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> um, so I relied, yeah, right. Like, you know, I had a lot, of, I had, I had help, but. Cool. And, Absolutely. and I, I know we've chatted about this. You've, you've also, you seem to have knocked off quite a few places in the globe where you've done bioarchaeology, which is cool yeah. and awesome. Could you talk about some of your experiences in, is it Laos? Yeah. So I, Damn I did not. two. So I, I've, I've worked in Peru as well, as I kind of talked about earlier, but I also was a contractor for the defense POW MIA accounting agency, which looks for past war dead people who were killed in action or missing in action. Imagine someone in World War II gets shot down over the Pacific or, or, or Marines fighting across Guadalcanal you know, that kind of thing. Right. And you don't have time to bring your buddy out and you bury them on site. Then there's this agency attached to the Department of Defense that goes out and actually looks for these individuals. And I was able to do two missions. They're they're called missions. I was able to do two missions with them. Uh, The first to the Solomon Islands, which not many people have kind of heard of, but many more people have heard of the Battle of Guadalcanal, um, which is this famous World War II battle. So I was able to work on the Solomon Islands looking for uh, some individuals who were lost in action there from a World War II site. And then I was also able to work on a site in Laos from the Vietnam War. And I can't get into the specifics of those, but but I, what I will say is, I mean, talk about working with local, local communities, especially in Laos, you know. 70, 80 locals helping you forming a giant bucket line. You're, you're excavating, you know, the, the typical pace for these excavations, this is not archeology span as we know it. This is a four by four a day. So four by four meters a day. You're moving yeah. dirt. In the you're, jungle. you're moving dirt. You're not, and you're not digging, you know, it, it's a whole, it's a whole different mindset. It's much more akin to forensics, right? This is a recovery. And the goal is not the the minute details of the stratigraphy it is finding evidence that that individual was there whether it's a tooth or a dog tag or or a set of actual remains yeah you're just trying to bring people home you're not trying to learn more about a site it's like we know that there's american war dead somewhere here they need to go home and so that is your goal use those archaeological skills boost the speed up to 200 and get them out yep i was brought on for that second project in laos uh, specifically because it was on a mountainside and they were like, oh, you, you, you know, <laughs> yammered, you yammered on about climbing for the entire time you were in the Solomon Islands. You want to go, you want to go get harnessed in and try this, you know, try this out on a slope. And that's exactly what it was. You know, we, we had, you know, mountaineers, you know, that worked for the, for the military setting up rope systems for us. And we were actually kind of, you know, doing, doing archeology span on this, this, slope like that right which i was forever happy on um yeah it's i'm kind of a mountain goat in that sense that was that was like really easy for me but the the archaeology that the challenges of maintaining a grid right just like the 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 simplest thing on a normal site right like maintaining your grid god forbid you look at that grid like you know in terms of for its accuracy now like it's it's By the end of that, you know, it, it wiggles. But, but the, the end goal, again, is is recovery of these individuals. And that it's it's such an important mission. And I would I mean, I think it's an incredible place to have worked. And and I was incredibly fortunate to work to work there for two two missions. They're just doing a, a really great thing, a really great service. It's I see it as really putting putting our money where our mouth is. Right. We have this, you know, no man left behind mentality and. And they're making sure that that's a reality. Um, and that's really, really cool. I think, you know, I, and part of the reason I, I wanted to, to talk about this with you is because it you, you've highlighted the diversity of jobs <laughs> you can get as a bioarchaeologist or as an archaeologist in general, I think. It, and it highlights different methods and, and, and things like that. And you're not always going to be digging with a trowel <laughs> and a, a one by one trying to like scrape through everything you know i think we we've tried to highlight this on our show is that there's a diversity of jobs what you do methods all that stuff i've got an embarrassing confession i think i've dug a one by one once (laughs) right not fair i've worked in listen in in (laughs) in petra in petra we were digging by the the confines of the tomb right so we dug to the walls Ah, and gotcha. it, in Peru, 
we we dug some one by ones, but we it was much more uh, to the edge of it, right. I've worked on a lot of larger architectural sites too, right? It, like more more monumental things. So you're digging, you know, to the outskirts of a of a, a building wall or or whatever it might be. And then obviously with with DPAA as a contractor there, you know, I was we were digging four by fours. So looking at our friends that like work at Laprell, you know, some of these some of these really these sites where you are you are digging down in these perfectly flat. I don't think I could do that. Like it's been so long since I've had to do that perfect excavation that like it's it's like kind of daunting for me to think about (laughs) that kind of archaeology. Yeah, I get scared too. If you put a yeah, give me a shovel or anything like that. I can do that. I can make it flat. I can burn burn through some stuff, but just scraping through stuff has got to be difficult. I know and David, you've you've mentioned this before on the podcast like you'd go at topper, you know, if you you did a scrape too much, you'd like yeah. burn through a level. <laughs> Wait till we get Derek on here. He'll uh he'll let you guys know about that. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Dude, it's been awesome having you on, Alex. We really appreciate you coming onto the show. It, it's been great. I, you know, we we've been for our Wyoming friends. We try to like wait to have them on until like they're close to done or done. So <laughs> rather than just in, <laughs> bringing a bunch of our Wyoming friends, like, so how's your dissertation going? You know, we we, we could actually we have success stories as to uh, what you've accomplished since since we've met you at this point, like five years ago. Well, at least I met you like five years ago. What year is it? Twenty twenty one. Yeah, I guess six years ago. Yeah. 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 So, you know, but before we end the show, what are a couple sources? These could be books, articles, or videos that you would recommend for anyone interested in bioarchaeology, archaeology Peru, or getting involved with the veterans recovery program thing. Lots of the folks that work at the veterans that work at DPAA, uh, a lot of those scientists are publishing a lot. So you can certainly like look for them, search for DPAA. They have a great website with lots of information as well. Not necessarily bioarch related, but a book that every single anthropologist needs to read is The Land of Open Graves by Jason DeLeon. I thought you were going to say The Fifth Beginning. I'm so glad you said that. Here we go. I I love The Fifth Beginning. I love The Fifth (laughs) Beginning. Uh, So I actually went, I I looked, I was like, all right, I I wrote down a list of books and and stuff. And I I went and looked and I got scooped on like four of them. And but the one that I didn't get scooped on was the land of open graves. And that book, every single anthropologist should read it is true for field anthropology. It looks at the uh, the current crisis um, on our southern border and kind of the the politics and the personalities and the and the people that are that are, you know, trying to cross the border and how as you know, as the government, you know, the government is kind of pushing back. And it's this it's this brutal look at kind of life on the border and life between between borders as well and it's every single it's four field every single anthropologist should have to read that book otherwise any work by sharon dewitt especially her work on plague cemeteries in europe that's like classic bioarchaeology and it's it's just she looks at these these incredible cemeteries where we know every single person died of plague. Is she at Texas? She is. She for a while was, I think she, I believe she's still at South Carolina. Okay. But yeah, that's fantastic. Really fantastic work. Uh, the other one is the bioarchaeology of violence. It came out maybe 2013, but it's still a worthy read. Lots of good case studies and, and really good theoretical approaches as well. And I mean, Shameless self-promotion. Definitely, I just put out an article with my colleagues from the Louisiana Attorney General's office. So definitely check that out. What's the title of that? We'll throw we'll throw that in here. Oh, that's Health, Stress, and Demography at Charity Hospital Cemetery Number Two. No, okay. no one his pubs off. That it's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it like just just came out. Like, no, dude, that's perfect. No, absolutely. Yeah. We'll absolutely direct people to go read that. If you're curious as to what happened at Guadalcanal, I highly recommend uh, With the Old <laughs> Breed at Peleliu in, in Guadalcanal, in Okinawa by Eugene Sledge. And that's absolutely the wrong one. I meant Helmet for My Pillow. And that is by, <laughs> I got, I watched, I actually watched The Pacific recently. That's how I know. The Pacific Anyways. is, I actually, I watched oh, The Pacific just before I uh, left for, for the Solomon Islands. Nice. Yeah. A lot of cool stuff happened. My dad's a former Marine. And Guadalcanal is a favorite topic is. Alex, where can our uh, you know followers find you on the, the social medias, on the interwebs? So I am, I'm social media inept, but I do have an Instagram. It's A Garcia Putnam. My name, no hyphens. You a LinkedIn guy? 
Uh, no, but I no, absolutely no. But I have a I have an <laughs> academia qu- account, and I have brand new. My wife forced me to get a Twitter account, so I'm at Garcia Putnam. Oof. Hell yeah! Uh, I I, listen, like I've, I've like barely used it, but I'm trying. All right, for sure. Got it. Awesome. Well, yeah. Thank you so much, Alex, for chatting with us today. And because this is a life in ruins, we have to ask you a very important question. If you had had the chance to go back and do it all again, would you still choose to live a life in ruins? Hell yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, with that, we just interviewed Dr. Alex Garcia Putnam. You can find him on Instagram, Twitter, and academia.edu. Um, all those links will be found on the description wherever you're listening to this podcast. Please be sure to rate and review the podcast, guys. I know I haven't been on the past few. Carlton's been off a few. Connor's been off a few. But, you know, we're still here. We're still kicking. You know what else is kicking? The two stars that we have. So kick, get, get just more stars. All right. I've said my piece. And with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. An archaeologist is the best husband a woman can have. The older she gets, the more interested he is in her. That means two things. <laughs> I don't know. I don't wow. know that. I mean, <laughs> that's a that's a like, common one. Okay, I got a better one. Did you guys watch the news? Someone poured oil over a major Jordanian city and heated it up. It was petrifying. Very bad. All right, I'm going to end it. Yeah. (laughs) This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. Rachel Roden, Laura Johnson, Max Lander, and... This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.